Thank you, Richard. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed their lunch. Uh, I know I did, uh, but uh, this is our uh, first panel after lunch, panel number four. Uh, if we can just give a round of applause and some energy to our panelists. Thank you. Great. Uh, and this panel is going to be discussing uh, private investor insights. Here, how, here are the top requests, investor mandates, and challenges uh, facing some of our investors here today. Uh, so thank you again for being with us. Uh, I know um, uh, if you guys can just give a quick one-minute introduction, uh, Richard, if uh, your introduction can be based a little bit more around um, your investment strategy and, and kind of what you're on the lookout for. Sure. So uh, off of my own balance sheet, I invest in operating businesses that are already profitable and need help either in marketing and or investor relations. And then I take uh, usually equity warrants and gross revenue royalty in the company. Uh, and then our equity warrants go down once we've gotten, say, two times our money back on the royalties. So I've done two of those deals. We're negotiating our next two now. Uh, but then also we represent clients through Centimillionaire Advisors, LLC, which is really filling the gap. We don't do what multifamily offices or private banks do, but we fill the gap in helping people develop their direct investment strategies, whether they run an MFO or an SFO, uh, or help them form their single family offices from scratch, uh, which is often the case of what we're focused on. And um, yeah, I think that's it. I'm Bo Meganson with Gold Coast Angel Investors from Miami. Uh, I've <clears throat> been in the angel investing space for about seven years. Uh, we, uh, in my previous life, in, invested in 43 companies, did 43 angel investments. Actually, we did 62. 19 of those were follow-on rounds, investing more than $45 million into those companies, had 13 exits, and with, a, again, understanding that your, your crash and burns are going to be Usually within the first 18 months, and you in 43 companies, you're going to have a few crash and burns, but we still are pushing double-digit IRRs, even factoring in those early crash and burns. So uh, we focus on primarily technologies of some kind. We'll really look at anything, but <clears throat> easier for me to tell you what we don't do. Uh, we don't do real estate. <laughs> we don't do uh, restaurants or bars. We leave those to doctors. Um, <laughs> We don't do brick and mortar retail and we don't do franchises. But again, uh, the exciting, it's an exciting space um, in angel investing right now, particularly where we are in South Florida. Thank you guys. Maya, take it over. We'll just do the same mic and pass it around. Uh, I'm Chris Benson. I'm the Chief Investment Officer at Reliant Investments. Uh, I represent a little bit different position than the investors here. Um, I'm a sponsor, so we are a commercial real estate operator from Roswell, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. Uh, we originally formed back in 2000, the end of 2005. Um, currently, we own 47 self-storage facilities, primarily in the southeast. Uh, we've had 21 exits um, over that time frame. Our track record's been pretty good, but we've also been part of one of the greatest real estate markets, at least in my generation. So I think from an underwriting standpoint, we're trying to mitigate what the risk is on the next cycle downturn. And I think uh, my perspective up here will be you guys will tell you what the investors want, and I'll be able to offer what I think the sponsors want. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so, I'm sorry, Bo, maybe I just kind of missed it. You did mention, you know, what you're not investing in, but it's, uh, we'll do really, or look at anything else. Technology. Let's try again. Hmm. Back down. Okay. Uh, technology typically is what drives 
the ability to scale. And people in angel investing and in alternative investing, we're looking at ways to go from today's value to 10 times today's value within four to five years. And typically that's going to take some type of intellectual property, some type of patent, something that's going to give the company a significant benefit and advantage in the marketplace and the ability to scale. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's what we look for is what, what's going to give that company the advantage. The other piece that's integral and irreplaceable is the management team. And just like you've heard so many people here say, it's about the operators, it's about the team. And I was telling someone earlier that a great management team with a good deal will outperform a good management team with a great deal every time, no exceptions, twice on Sunday. Every single time it's about the team. And we've got our first $150 million exit lined up that is proof positive that that's exactly why it's happened. So I guess from that perspective, we're looking for opportunities that can scale, that can uh, grow. And not, we're not talking about two or three years and getting a 10 or 12x. Sometimes you can get that. Uh, I'm very skeptical. But if we can get uh, 8 to 12x maybe in four or five years, or maybe get uh, four to 6x in two or three years. We'll take those all day long. And that's, that's kind of the I'll take those two. <laughs> so. And uh, uh, Richard, would you agree with Bo's statement uh, on you know, a good uh, deal with a great management team is always going to be better than a great deal with a good management team? Yeah, I mean, I think most people hear that and they're like, yeah, yeah, everyone says team is most important. You know, tell me something brand new that's going to blow my socks off. Uh, but the reality is I think a lot of people meet an investment firm and then they're pushing their high RRR and so is everyone else. And they're pushing like their strategy, which sounds maybe very similar to everyone else. So I think it's actually taking that and making it, making it actionable and thinking about how do you move them up the trust curve on the team? How do you get them to come to your office? How do you embed a video of you as the founder in your pitch deck? Because we've reviewed it 295 of your guys' pitch decks and one person had a video inside the pitch deck and it didn't have the founder in it. So I think it's like taking what you've all heard at other conferences, you kind of know intuitively and acting on it, and then I think that's what gives you the edge uh, when you're trying to get the attention of investors. Can I just say one? one yeah, thing? please. From the sponsor side, and, and we've had a pretty significant experience as far as raising capital, and, and I'm sure some of the other sponsors here have as well. And I mean, the trust is one thing, and I think the other thing is, do you like each other? I, I, I mean, we're asking an investor to partner with us for just five, hold it, hold five it, to hold seven. Hold it closer. I forgot to mention that earlier. Hello. We're asking investors to partner with us for five to seven years on most of our typical projects, and I, I want you to still want to talk to me in seven years. I mean, I, I think a big part of this is understanding are, you, are your goals aligned with what their goals are? Not everything is going to be a win, Bo, to your point. In angel investing, it's probably a little bit different than real estate, but you know, nobody bats a thousand. And you want to understand that the people who are partnered with you have similar goals and um, mindset because you're going to be together for quite some time. And I think to your point, Chris, in real estate, particularly what you guys do, you, you don't go over. I mean, even if the, the property doesn't go well, you can get something typically, even if it's 25 cents on the dollar on the real estate. The real estate, you can get something. If your software tanks, I'll give you a good example. <clears throat> and this is a case we've used for not being greedy. Uh, about six years ago, one of our uh, lead investors was the single largest outside investor in a company called Passalong Networks. Has anybody heard of Passalong Networks? I'll be shocked if I see a hand. Okay. Well, does anybody remember something called Napster? 
Anybody heard of Napster? Okay. You know, Napster was that sharing technology. Well, Passalong developed a dongle or tech, something, some kind of technical digital thing, technical term, that you would download, which would allow you to download music from somebody else or a video file or something, but you could not pass it along to somebody else unless you had this little whatever it was that you downloaded onto your phone or onto your PC for which you paid $1.95 or whatever it was. And the owner of the company was convinced, or the owner, the CEO who owned 36% of the stock, was convinced this was a billion dollar company, and he may have been right. EMI, you might be familiar with EMI Records, their publishing company, they came to pass along about seven years ago. Put in, and again, we were the single largest outside shareholder. They put about two and a half million dollars in them at about a $12 million valuation. EMI came in and put an $82 million check on the table to the, and talked to the CEO and did not go to the board with it. And the CEO, as a fiduciary responsibility, was supposed to come to the board. He did not. He was convinced it was a billion-dollar company, said no thank you. Six months later, Pass Along Networks was out of business because somebody else had come up with somebody else, with something new, and had sold it and licensed it and had taken over the industry. So the point is you can go from, as opposed to where in real estate, you can have something, the dirt to sell. If you're stupid or greedy, you can end up with nothing and make an $82 million mistake. Now, hopefully, that's, that's not hopefully. We have learned from that. And we're still in court over that seven years later, by the way. So will we get anything? Probably not, but at least a little satisfaction. But the point is being able to understand and talking about the people, even people that wear green socks. <laughs> I couldn't pull that off. I just couldn't do it. Oh, man. I'm, I'm the monochrome guy. You can't Jeez. do this. This is like a Mr. Rogers. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things does not belong. Uh, but at any rate, being able to identify the team. And yes, this guy had built the company up to a great value, but obviously there was something missing. And that's one of the keys in, in doing any kind of angel investing or any kind of sourcing is betting out and understanding, just like Chris said, who you're dealing with. Who are the people you're in business with? Because ultimately particularly if you're in a bigger group of, of limited partners or investors, you're going to be at the behest of somebody. And that's what is one of the key elements in doing this kind of, particularly technology investing. Because you can go from, from zero to 60 and back to zero pretty quickly if you're not careful. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone that's uh, been here through the lunchtime was networking with different people. And there's some people you just naturally say, this person's kind of like me. This person's in line with who I am. I could probably do business with this person, whether or not they're in an industry where there's a connection. You get that intuitive feel pretty quickly when you meet with people. And next Friday uh, in Chicago at our Influence Workshop, we talk about first impressions and how investors judge you based on an email signature, your first few words in a voicemail, your one-liner, et cetera. And I just think when you meet with someone and then your gut's telling you something's off or I don't trust this person or this sounds strange or this sounds over the top, that it's really important to listen to that as an investor because somewhere in your you know, subconscious bells are going off saying like, this person's not real, this person's not like me, we're not people that are gonna be able to work together for seven years, et cetera. So I think it's really important for private investors here to, to listen to that intuition because it's based on tens of thousands of conversations you've probably had to date where you've gotten burned or something was a waste of time. Great, and, um, and thank you. And I have a, because I, I see this a lot and um, 
you know, in the conversations and it's a word that comes up often. I wanted to get your perspective when you hear it. When you hear low risk, you know, and that's like a big thing. Like what do you, what goes through your head? Is it, you know, when you hear low risk, do you, are you open to the possibility of it being that way? Does it immediately turn you off? Does it, you know, does it excite you? For me, I, uh, there was a comical situation at one of our events. Someone up, came up and showed me this elaborate plan to do something in an international location. And they had all these uh, graphics of what it would look like. And I could tell it was computer generated. And she, and she literally said, there's no risk to this. There's no risk. And I said, well, do you have like a pilot study? Have you done at least one of them uh, before? And she's like, oh, we've well, done a, a computer generated pilot study. And her saying that it literally had no risk just made it look like the riskiest thing on planet Earth to me. So I think that uh, sometimes the people that use it, uh, you know, it's the opposite of that uh, because it's their first time raising capital for a project and someone messaged them on LinkedIn and they're doing a billion dollar greenfield project or something they've never, they've never worked with before. So uh, it can be a little bit uh, scary, but I always just look at how many people they have on their team, years experience, or they have been focused in it a long time and then see if it's real. And to Richard's point, that when someone says there's no risk, or low. or low risk, I'll say, well, define your terms. I, everything is subjective. If you're going to say, here's, here's low risk, or define low. What does that mean? Because low risk to a multifamily real estate developer is going to be different from someone like me who looks at patented intellectual property and technologies. So there's a difference in terms. And then the other piece that, that Richard mentioned earlier also is I find that the harder someone tries to sell me something, the more skeptical I am because in my experience, and again, of the 43 deals that we've seen, we've probably reviewed 40 to 45 legit deals to get the one. So we've probably looked at 1,600 deals. The, typically, the best deals are uh, the numbers speak so loudly you don't have to sell. One of the best examples was a, a company out of Atlanta that came out of uh, Georgia Tech uh, called Variable Technologies. And the CEO and the pitch guy was a, a guy named George Yu, and he was a Chinese national. His name wasn't George. That was his anglicized name, but his last name was Yu, and he was a Ph.D. electrical engineer, and he had a commensurate personality. And that, so it, exactly what you would expect. And George gave the driest, most boring, mundane presentation you can ever imagine. We wouldn't, we'd all be asleep. But when he got to the numbers, because he had the patents, we said, okay, talk to us about your intellectual property. Well, Georgia Tech had done a great job vetting out the IP and getting the patent work done, and they've got top-notch patent people. Listed the patents. Show us your, your, what's your market. Here's my, here's my market, and here's what we project the numbers can be, and here's what our beta test said, and here's what AT&D did for us, and here's what IBM did for us in our beta, and here's what Xerox did. And the numbers were just astounding. And George has done nothing but perform and meet his milestones ever since we invested in him because the numbers, the story will tell itself. Now, I'm not an IT guy, but we had subject matter expertise people who could translate George's verbiage into, into redneck, which is what I speak. That's why he doesn't like the socks. <laughs> exactly. That makes sense now. Well, at least I'm wearing socks and shoes. That's a major step forward. But uh, just, just to follow on what Bo says, I mean, I think risk obviously is very subjective. And, and to your point, what you do is ex 
exceptionally risky in my mind because my my project always has value, right? It's tangible. I can feel it. But your upside is significantly different. I, I think the key to when someone says low risk, it, it means that they don't understand what the other person wants. And, and a big part of my job and I think all of our job, uh, whether you're the investor or the sponsor, is understanding the other party's wants and needs. And, and that's sales 101, right? Is, Tell me what you want to do and what your goals are, and maybe I'm a fit, maybe I'm a not. And, and if I'm a fit, I don't have to sell it, right? It, the track record, if, if my track record speaks for itself, and you tell me what I'll, you want to do, and I do that, well, then we found a way to work together. But I think that's a key component to when people add adjectives to things, it's usually uncomfortable, right? And, and this is the last thing I'll say about sales is, when you go to the mall and you get accosted by the guy at the kiosk or gal at the kiosk who's pitching you something, the reason it's uncomfortable is because no one asked you if you wanted it, right? So if I'm pitching you hand cream, I, I don't moisturize. Like, I, it doesn't matter how good it is. I, I don't want to talk to you. But if they had asked, hey, do you moisturize? And I said, no, well, then go talk to the next person. And, and I think that's a big part of any adjective that you bring to the table. You know, don't add an adjective if you don't need it. And uh, I would just add that, uh, you know, Jock spoke earlier from Talos, and uh, Covey is famous for saying to be uh, influential, you, you first have to be influenceable by listening first and taking things in. And I think that's connected to what, what we're all saying here about low risk and getting to know an investor and what they actually want and what's relative to their portfolio. Yeah, I think it's um, a lot of times, once again, I, we get a lot of calls into the office, and sometimes I'll pick up the phone and say, hey, this is Andres with Family Office Club. Hey, Andres. This is what I'm working on. This is what it is. This is these are the numbers, and it's a good 10-minute pitch. And it's very rare for me to encounter someone that approaches us and says and asks us questions, qualifying questions. In the sales world, they're called qualifying questions. But asking great questions could allow you could save you one a lot of time, a lot of time, and could really pique people's interest. Because if you ask great questions, you're able to develop and deliver a better message. And once again, it's not going to come off as salesy, right? Because you're just really trying to figure out their wants and needs. And I think that for anybody that feels like, <clears throat> I think it's important for people to really kind of monitor themselves and realize like, how do I communicate when I actually get someone on the other line? You know, how much do I, how much time have I given this person to speak and discuss and share what they're looking for before I give my spiel? Um, so just a piece of advice for everybody. Monitor, how did you respond when that person picked up? Sometimes maybe you were doing 100 calls and you got one pickup and that excites you and you want to get right to it. But really start to analyze how you take those calls. Um, my next question for you guys is, you know, what kind of deals would you like to be presented with? You know, uh, what's sticking out for you? Is it similar to something, you know, are you guys looking for deals similar to what you're already investing in? Are you looking for deals different and outside of what you've already invested in? I'll start with Richard. Sure. Uh, with a family, just sold their manufacturing business after 32 years in uh, manufacturing of auto parts. So if anyone has an auto parts manufacturing company, a distribution company, that'd be of high interest. Uh, we're onboarding a client right now just sold their fintech company for over a billion dollars. They're looking to reinvest back into fintech. Um, and so a company that has strong IP in fintech would be of interest. Uh, we also have an active hospitality family. Um, that is not uh, looking to allocate this quarter, but they want to be finding technological devices, other things to be kind of synergistic with their portfolio. 
of hotels. So those would be some front and center things from, from client mandates and what I mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, companies that are doing one million to maybe 15, 20 million a year that are operating businesses and are profitable consistently that need either investor relations or marketing help on the, uh, the royalty side. Well, <coughs> with us, we, we like, don't necessarily need to be profitable. What, what really, <coughs> excuse me, I like now are those companies and sectors where once you reach a certain critical mass, the valuation metric flips from a function of EBITDA or earnings to a function of gross revenues. And right now, those two sectors are software as a service in whatever sector, hospitality, real estate technology, fintech, doesn't matter. As long as you've got a, a, a software for which someone's paying a monthly subscription service or a quarterly service. Uh, that's number one. The other is IT-enabled healthcare services, uh, things like the telehealth right now. Uh, is really big, but something that has an IT component that not only facilitates ease of delivery, but also gathers the data that is ultimately down the road more valuable than the company itself. So those, in those two spaces, when you hit about five and a half million dollars in gross revenues in either of those two spaces, the valuation metric then flips to a function of gross revenues and you're looking at minimum five to six X gross revenues. So if you're in a software in a service company or you have somebody that's in one, tell them to get to about six million in revenues and you're looking at minimum $30 million exit more than likely. So those two, those two spaces are what we really like. With the caveat, you need to have very good management. Uh, and the, uh, one of our portfolio companies that I'll reference, that I reference a lot is a company called Kahua, K-A-H-U-A. They are a uh, construction management software company and they will be our first probably $200 million exit because all they've done is perform and meet benchmarks, come in under budget and, uh, and, and do everything they're supposed to do because they had a good CEO who'd had previous experience. Chris? Well, I think for us, I mean, on the real estate side, we're looking for obviously self-storage. Um, so typically, you know, 30,000 square feet or larger with a value add component is really what we focus on primarily in the Southeast. Um, we, we will do development deals, but at this late in the cycle, we're doing one, maybe two a year. Um, I think from a investor partnership side of things, I mean, I think we're looking for investors who have a long-term horizon. Uh, with a little bit of a, a long-term lens who are looking for passive income in a pretty historically stable asset class. So, I mean, I think that's our, um, the avatar of a perfect investor for us. Can you give some examples of value adds in self-storage? We put granite countertops and hardwood floors in the garages. <laughs> Just kidding. So typically the value add for us is expansion based. So one of the interesting things about self-storage is about 20 to 25% of the market is owned by uh, publicly traded companies. So there's five REITs and then U-Haul. The other 70 to 75% of the market is all over the board. There's regional operators like us. We're the 27th largest self-storage operator in the US. Um, and six of them are REITs. So there's 20 in between that are a little bigger than us, but there's still a ton of mom and pop operators. And so for us, that provides huge opportunities just to go in and run the property like a business. I'll give an example, a property that we're gonna buy in, in Lutz, Florida. Um, a guy built it ground up in 1998, has done multiple expansions. He's selling it, it's been his life's work. It's a fantastic property. He's never raised rents on the tenants who started with him. So he has a 10 by 10 unit that got rented in 2000. That tenant's paying the same rent as they are today. Now, he's raised rents on new people coming in, but for us, those are huge revenue opportunities. 
but the value add typically for us is expansion. So we're looking at a market where uh, we'll buy a property that's cash flowing and there's an opportunity to expand, um, you know, 15, 20,000 square feet of climate control and position the asset so that we're an institutional target five to seven years out. Great. And, and for people that may approach you with potential deals here, what kind of uh, terms, fees, and structures would you find as ideal? Yeah, sure. I guess for uh, my family office clients, they're really looking to pay a multiple on profits. Uh, they don't like to pay a multiple on revenue. It's great to sell a multiple on revenue, but they want to pay something times EBITDA. And usually that means they're going to be in the range of uh, 2.5 to 5 times EBITDA. They might go up as far as 6, 7 times EBITDA. But uh, they really would be selling the assets once they've aggregated it enough where they'd be an 8 or 9 or 10 times valuation. So that means they're usually coming into companies that are doing half a million uh, up to maybe three to five million a year in profits to build a platform. And then on the, uh, the gross revenue royalty side, I mean, we're basically just looking so there's a payback period on the royalty part of that over a three to four year period. And then we usually like to structure it uh, so there's warrants instead of just a straight inequity piece. We strictly benefit on the back end as a GP. We strictly benefit on the profit interest on the sale of the company. So. If we invest in a company and it does not scale up and we sell it and we didn't make money, the GP makes nothing. But if the company scales up and let's say you, we invested a million dollars and we sell it for 10 and our, our one million is worth 10 million, we get a 10x. We return the initial capital back to the investors and then we get 20%. We do an 80-20 split of the, of the profit interest of the general partnership. 80 goes to the limited partners or the investors, 20% of the profits interest. So in that scenario, of the $9 million that was left over in profit, we would get 1.8 of that. I think for us, it, it, it very much differs. And, and I guess advice I could give that's applicable for everybody, not just in self-storage. When you look at real estate, you know, there's really the fee structure you want to be aware of, and then the profit structure on the back end, how you're sharing. And, and ultimately, as investors, you want to make sure that our incentives as a sponsor are aligned with yours. So fees, um, you want to pay a fee because they have infrastructure and they have overhead that they're managing, but it has to be reasonable. And, and it's pretty easy just by looking at other deal flow to understand what should be industry standard. Um, but as far as structure for us, um, you know, we just launched a fund where we have three classes of investor based on investment amount. But I would say somewhere in that, you know, that pref, uh, preferred return of 8 to 10 percent, or I've seen from 6 to 10 percent, and then the uh, equity waterfall on the back end is typically that, you know, 60-40 to 80-20, depending on how much money you're investing. I think that's pretty realistic. Um, you know, I think the thing that where people get in trouble is um, there are a lot of operators and that just have a, a, an egregious fee structure, whether it, be, whether it be front end loaded or back end. And so I think you just need to make sure that it's fair and equitable. We want to make money. We want the investors to make money, or you hope your operator wants your investor to make money. Um, and the goal is, is just to align those structures to the best of your ability. I guess the only thing I'd add to what I said before is just that we found if you do an equity warrant instead of straight equity, it helps defend against the future raises they may do, because otherwise you acquire 2% equity. You might have to re-up three more times to maintain your 2% position, or as long as your warrants haven't expired, uh, you know, then, yeah, it's like an anti-dilution, you know, tactic, basically, so that you don't have to be re-upping every time, perhaps, depending on the, the terms of your warrant. 
Excellent. Thank you. And do, does the audience have any questions they would like to ask our panelists? Right here in the front. Yes. Bo, you must get free drinks across the country. People thinking you're Ron White, the comedian. <laughs> <laughs> They all want to have a drink oh with you, God. right? So, now, you've been clear about what you look for. I'm curious, what are the intangibles for tech companies that you look for that are, you know, aside from hockey sticks and great management yeah, and all that stuff? It, it, you know, it's, it's it, in that regard, it's as much art as is anything else. I mean, you guys have looked at deals, and ladies as well. Y'all have looked at deals, and you know what kind of looks good and what doesn't. Um, I will say that, as Richard, we were talking about great management teams. If, it's, if I think it's a good deal with a great management team, I'm probably missing something because a great management team probably isn't going to be in a good deal. Now, what could make it good is that they've made it so expensive, and when we got into Kahua, the one I re referenced earlier, that's going to be a $200 million exit, we thought it was a couple million dollars too highly priced. But our internal conversation was if these guys perform like they had in their previous exit, we're not going to be worried about one or two million dollars on the back end, and we're not. I mean... At this point, it's 175 or 200 million. One or two million dollars really on the front end is trivial at this point. So uh, the intangible would be the management team. Um, if we've got some type of subject matter understanding of the vertical, you know, I've, I've got some experience in healthcare services, um, so I can kind of know what what the really maybe the opportunity, and then maybe what the strategic opportunities might be. What that's where one and plus one plus one can equal 14. Is if you have, particularly within your, within our, let's say our um, portfolio, we've got companies or know people, and we do get referrals from private equity t uh, groups that say, hey, we found something that's not quite baked enough for us yet, but y'all might want to look at it. If we can make some strategic relationship, because in a lot of cases, many cases, like with George Yu that I referenced earlier, these are technology guys and ladies that just don't understand marketing or sales. Another great example, not to go too long, but this is a one that I just got an email from. We have um, a company that's an artificial intelligence company in Florida, as a matter of fact. And the CEO, it was a small operation, still is relatively small, but he had worked uh, with a Fortune 30 company for 20 years, came up with something, and actually took it. They said, yeah, take it. You can grow it. Anyway, uh, he got referred to me, and he said, I think I've got something here, and he's about 61 now, so he's not, he's still got some gas in the tank, but he said, I think I've got something I can grow here and really make it something significant. I said, well, you know, Jim, what are you doing? He says, well, we've got this artificial intelligence mechanism that we've been, we've been using it. It's, I've been, got a good customer. I've been servicing them for about three years. They keep re-upping. We go up on our, our costs every year. They're very pleased with it. I said, you got one customer? He said, yeah. I said, okay, well, well, who's your customer? He said, IBM. I said, you think you can scale? He said, well, I think we can. So we've just kind of been educating Jim on, you know, what market viability is. And so he, he sent me an email that he's got another customer that you would all recognize the name of it. So that's just one of the things that you've got. You've got something that's there, but you don't have necessarily – uh, the skill sets in other areas, but you've got something. If, if you guys got an IBM as a customer, I think we got something we can work with. I would just add, if you're raising capital for a technology company or another niche, I, in my experience over the last 12 years doing 117 of these events, less than 5% of you that are raising capital have systematically said, who are the 50 family offices local to me? Who are the 50 strategic publicly traded companies that have 
cash available to make strategic investments and have internal corporate venture capital firms? Who are the 200 entrepreneurs who have had exits in fintech or exits in cannabis or exits in data centers and systematically creating a targeted database of 300 people who are all the way up the trust curve on your industry already? Now you need to move them up who you are and who your team is with those intangible aspects. Almost nobody does that while raising capital and they just go to generic investors who don't already know the, the space like the back of their hand. I see that over and over again and I think that things would move a lot quicker uh, if you had that, that, that focus by looking at exits or past Inc. 5000, Inc. 500 companies uh, in your niche and then it makes all the difference in having a productive conversation and, and showing that expertise along the way. Excellent, thank you. Um, does any, anybody else have a question? Let me take another question. Uh, I don't know if I described that in the capital raising book, you know, from capitalraising.com or not. Okay, yeah, it might not be. Uh, but we'll talk about it next week as well in Chicago if you're going to be there. Great, so I'm still taking questions from the audience. In the back. Hi, Herman Torres out of Houston. Um, I hear a lot about, and I've heard obviously a lot of you guys at the, in the panels all, all day long about different strategies and different investment opportunities. Um, I have not heard anything about any potential investment opportunities outside of the U.S. Do you guys ever consider anything internationally? We do. We have not because typically, and most of our portfolio has been in the southeastern U.S. because we want to be within one flight of, from Atlanta to the management team. Uh, and now in Miami, probably two, maybe two flights. But again, from a proximity perspective, um, it's just an accountability wanting to be able to get to those teams and those companies in a, an efficient, effective manner if we have to. Um, we talked about teams, and the last thing I'll say about that, are the last three companies we sold, which were not huge exits, well, three of the last four companies we sold, um, the CEO of the company was not the CEO we invested in. And we had to make a change. And so, and you need to be able to get to, in my opinion, from just a logistical perspective, you gotta be able to get to them in a fairly efficient manner to be able to do that. Now we do have a Silicon Valley company now, but that's, they're farther down the road. But I would be hesitant to do something overseas for a lot of reasons. In my, in my experience, uh, those who are based in the United States, unless they're a big uh, institutional investor and being smart about diversification across a whole portfolio and they're doing that as their business, but most family offices, you know, they'll invest in Columbia if their family's from Columbia and now they're living in Miami. Or they'll invest in the country where they have, they've descended from or their wife is from, they travel back there all the time, they know the laws, they know the legal court system like in India, et cetera. And we have a, um, a pitchdex.com client uh, in Chicago, for example, of Indian descent, runs a hedge fund, and a lot of his investors happen to be of Indian descent. And I asked him, he's like, yeah, now that you mention it, I guess it is about 80% of my investors. And a CPA was helping him out and uh, making introductions for him. And I said, well, go through all the CPAs in the state of Illinois or city of Chicago that obviously have Indian last names. Go meet with those 34 individuals, et cetera, as a first step for getting more referral partners. And you could do that with the Chinese Chamber of Commerce or Harvard alumni who are from Mexico etc. and find people that meet a demographic that would understand the space because they grew up there, their, their parents still live there. I think that's a shortcut to 
making progress. Otherwise, the average family office, average American who's never visited Singapore is not going to be very comfortable in the excitement of what's happening there in the high-tech space in Southeast Asia. You know, I found you're just fighting, you're fighting an uphill battle. Uh, Chris? Yeah, I think for us, um, we've looked at it at a high level but never made any major strides. Um, it's an interesting opportunity, specifically in storage, just because the penetration storage is minimal in other parts of the world. Uh, we had two investors in meeting with us just a couple of weeks ago who both have a company in India. Um, they, they have an office in Atlanta as well, and um, he brought it to us and said, hey, uh, in India we store two things. It's gold and we understand real estate. He's like, and the banks don't have any room for the gold. He's like, you may want to create storage lockers in India with gold. And so those are things that we evaluate, but to be candid, we're not in a position yet, I think, to know if, if that's a uh, reasonable opportunity for us. But well, you're still open to taking conversations and meetings around those opportunities? Absolutely. And, and Richard, since I know a little bit more about you, you've done some work overseas in terms of potential deals. I mean, did that, does that have you leaning to having more conversations in that regard or stepping away from those conversations? Uh, I think it's like a ta time management situation. I mean, in uh, London, there's a big concentration of family offices. Uh, but if you don't have a reason to travel there often enough, then you're just a business tourist and it's hard to build a real relationship. Uh, in Asia, there's a lot of underbanked new wealth and they don't have 15 private bankers knocking on their door every month, so there could be more opportunities there. But time zone and travel, you have to really pick your fights. I know there's a family office club member wanting to talk about international capital raising after the event during cocktails, and that's what I'm going to tell them is you have to pick one or two, maybe three places maximum that you have natural connections to, deal flow in, you know, uh, you have a connection with your family, et cetera, and really focus there. And I guess um, a lot of the advice on this panel so far I think boils down to uh, being more systematic and focused and more clear. And for a private investor, the reversal of everything I was talking about is also true. Instead of looking at investments just coming towards you, you define your exact strike zone of what investments you want, the criteria, and you go out and create a database of those 375 companies that are healthcare fintech and get the contact details for their CEO, reach out to them systematically, and I think that's how you source great deals. If there's someone here starting a family office or they're a new private investor, you know, I think that can make a huge difference whether you're going international or domestic. Yeah, great. And, and, you know, hopefully that answers a lot of the people that I've been on the phone with that have asked me, do the investors look at international investments? And I think that, you know, Chris even made a good point in terms of first he had to be educated in where the opportunity lied, which was, you know, in India and, and the fact that it's <clears throat> that they look to store gold because the banks can't store all the gold, right? So if you're able to educate the investor on why they should at least consider hearing you out, then, you know, that's really what's going to open up the door. Not so much like, is this person already in that position, but are they open to learning about that potential opportunity? And I would just say that there's ways to find them congregated within an alumni association uh, that folks on the country, but also there's people looking online for how to, how to invest in, in real estate or how to invest in German real estate or how to invest in India, et cetera. So it can be proactive and reactive of like finding the people who are actively looking for the expert to help them allocate to India or to Colombia, et cetera. Great. Um, so uh, another round of applause for our panelists. Thank you so much for participating.